you know, as we have uh, unfolded this journey of this week, um, using these energies of our heart that are uh, naturally resident in our experience, um, and we turn them towards the the full spectrum of our lives, from the from the woes and the sorrows that that um, as kindness is directed towards the experience of the 10,000 sorrows, the quivering of the heart emerges in the midst of impa- compassion. That's, that's the definition of, of <clears throat> that, that second energy of the heart or Brahma-vihara. And as we turn it to the goodness in our lives, the, um, the, the luminosity, the, the brilliance of our lives, this joy arises and I have the um, privilege and, uh, uh, of, of speaking to the joy and it's one of my favorite topics and practices. Um, although I don't think it's a very easy one often. And, um, and so the joy of mudita, which is the, the Pali word, is sometimes translated as appreciative, empathetic, sympathetic joy. Somehow those words are, I'm not sure where, where they're pointing towards, but I'll, I'll, I'll give you an indication as I go through the talk where I think it's pointing to, where I'm feeling it's pointing towards. And behind all those words for me, is a relational element. It's a collective experience. So it's a collective joy. It's something that, that uh, emerges in our life on this planet. And the classic image that is often given to describe mudita is a dear friend who is sm- smiling all the time. So that the dear friend engenders the kindness and the, and the relational aspect. And the smile is um, their happiness, their joy. Rejoicing in happiness itself. Rejoicing in the, the happiness and, and goodness of others. And sometimes the, um, because this is uh, such a, um, a path that has has incremental steps to it. There is a term called proximate cause. So, um, the proximate cause, that which uh, is a condition that leads to mudita, is being aware of the happiness or success in the life of others and ourselves, in the life of beings, and. When I was saying that mudita sometimes is not an easy um, practice, it's because cultivating this happiness and the happiness of others, um, as as um, Sylvia was saying, sometimes so much of the opposite was would would arise. We live in such a um, rather cynical or competitive and sensationalist culture. This this aspect of joy at someone else's joy, it's not as if we teach that. 
very frequently in our schools or our workplace. It's not necessarily a managerial skill that I find in professional trainings. What would it be like if that were to be the case? In fact, uh, here's, I'm going on a little riff, um, that, you know, mindfulness, the secular mindfulness is the rage in our culture. And there it, and it emerges from these teachings, of course. And these teachings are linked to the ethics and the teachings of the heart that, that is indispensable to the teachings of mindfulness. So anyway, that's a little editorial. So we are a culture, you know, in terms of the cynicism and the sensationalism and, the, and when you look on Huffington Post, how many happy articles do you see? Um, and so Thich Nhat Hanh has this very, you know, succinct pointing of teaching. When there are issues and challenges in our life, where is the non-problem? Because there are places in our life that don't, aren't part of that problem. We are, that problem, that challenge, that injury, that difficulty is not all of who we are. But can we remember that? And sati, which is the Pali word for what we call mindfulness or heart mindfulness, is part of that translation is the ability to remember. To, the ability to remember not, not only that which leads to freedom, but who we really are is not what we necessarily just think. We are so much more than who we think we are. So this, this aspect of looking at the non-problem and, and feeling the... Um, uh, the non-sorrow in our life. You can just start by, you know, if there's an ache or a pain or, or a discomfort in the body and, and when you're sitting, where is the body not feeling that? Because you have a whole body. And it's not, not every single cell is feeling that sensation. And to be able to remember, to see, to observe, to be mindful of that full range of our life, of the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. So this is a, you know, it's one of the classic hundred Zen stories. And it's, um, um, uh, you probably have heard it before, a Zen master is walking through the forest and a tiger begins to chase him. And he's running through the forest. He runs out of the forest. And, and his path is cut off by this deep um, cliff and chasm. And um, so uh, he scrambles down trying to, you know, get away from the tiger. But there's no foothold. And, 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 and he's about to fall into the chasm. And he grabs a branch. And the tiger is, is coming over the, the cliff. And, you know, uh, a rodent is starting to gnaw the branch. 
and he's looking for anything else to grab and there is this bush and on this bush is a bright red berry you know just waiting to be plucked and he takes it and puts it in his mouth and revels in the taste and that's the end of the story Can we see the totality of our life in the midst of whatever we think is happening? So as we have been going through the different energies of the heart, the Brahmaviharas, um, the, again, one of the traditional ways of, of describing it is through its near and far opposites. And the far opposite of mudita is what um, uh, Sylvia was so beautifully describing when you wish someone well and the opposite feeling comes up. Like, why do they deserve that? Why don't I have that? And this is called envy or jealousy or the comparing, you know, it's that comparison, the comparing mind that the logical outcome of envy is that anyone who can do better than me is my enemy. And this is really the comparison of self, the comparison of ego. That if, you know, that I feel less than or if I feel that you are more than I, that something is wrong. The Buddha said, in <clears throat> in a battle, the winners and lo- losers both lose. So really, it's 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 um, this practice of mudita, this practice of of sharing in that joy, is the is the is the antidote to this uh, unconscious conditioning of competition that we have when we become primarily concerned about our own survival of this individual self. When we think that, you know, our life is is just a very few pieces, limited pieces of the pie, and we're reluctant to share any of our happiness with others, and that it it is about more is better for me. So there's this, uh, there's this cartoon and, it, and there's two guys that are meditating and, and one turns to the other and says, when I was making money, I made the most money. Now, when I'm spiritual, I'm the most spiritual. <laughs> And, you know, the reason it's funny is that there's a little bit of truth. <laughs> Humor always works that way. And, 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 it, and, and to notice, oh, you know, like, I'm so good sitting in this silence, or my walking is so slow. <laughs> Look at that person walking to the bathroom, whatever it is.
And really just to notice when the opposite of mudita comes up, when, when there is the comparing mind. Because always, when you notice, when you are aware that you're not feeling kind, when you're aware you're not feeling that shared joy, that's the beginning of the practice. Because in that moment you have the choice, you have the invitation. If you hadn't woken up in that moment and recognized that, oh, I'm feeling contracted or I'm feeling competitive, you would just go on in that, in that field of unconsciousness. So the near opposite, that which looks like in, um, uh, mudita, this joy, is the experience of exuberance or what's called exhilaration. And again, this is pointing to an experience, but where I go with it is that it's the experience of joy, but it has attachment. We want more of it because it's pleasant or even it's more than pleasant. It's, it's one of those superlative, you know, uh, experiences. Uh, have you ever, um, you know, come off of a ver- retreat or a sitting and, um, and it was, you know, really quiet. It was really still. It was, you had this clarity or this openness and that's what you want for every sitting. And you try to go back to it. That, that attachment to the joy But the joy also passes, like the 10,000 sorrows, the 10,000 joys will also. I, uh, I have to notice this when um, Stephen and I go traveling, because we love to travel, and we've had the good fortune of, of doing a lot of um, uh, travel to countries that we weren't able to see when we were younger, both of us in our, in our previous lives. And when we travel, you know, there's always this, this, um, this rhythm that we are so excited and we, we get there and we're having a great time. And somewhere about two-thirds through the vacation, we realize it's going to end. <laughs> and, you know, there's a little bit of a crash. Like, what do we do now? Like, do we not enjoy it because we know it's going to end. And, and um, it's, it's, it's really um, uh, a beautiful teaching that, that to notice the impermanence even when things are going wonderfully. You know, we can feel this in some of our, I don't know about you, but in some of the recent political elections in which, you know, I'm so attached to the outcome of whatever the issue is, and, and it happens. And there's this exhilaration, there's this, you know, there's this um, hope that, oh, it's always going to be like this. And it's not. You can feel how many reversals of political fortunes have come just even the last decade. This is not how things, you know, this is how things evolve. Also to notice that joy has a certain flavor to it. But really, 
there are infinite flavors of joy. It's not one single state of being. It's not like you turn on a light switch and, you know, we're brilliantly happy. But really, is it possible to identify the whole range of feelings that, that um, come under this rubric? For example, tranquility, calm, curiosity, non-anger, non-harm, non-irritation, even humor. Really all of them point in the direction of, of this aspect of joy. Sympathetic, this appreciative joy, um, rejoicing in the happiness of, of self and others is, is more common than we sometimes can believe or think. You know, when we think of our children, of course we want them to be happy. I don't know how many of you are teachers, but you know, um, some of my most inspiring teachers are, are the teachers who um, uh, uh, created conditions that, that their students would surpass them in their accomplishments, in their, in their uh, abilities. You know, that kind of investment into someone else's goodness or, or success. And if it's hard, you know, if it, if, if it feels like this is weird or this is, you know, unfamiliar territory, part of what you can do to experiment with it is um, to allow someone to borrow your happiness, to, to share. You know, you don't have to give it away. You don't have to, you don't have to be unconditional about it in the beginning. This is an incremental process. Just loan it to someone. You know, even if you want to charge some interest, you know, it doesn't... Just try it and see if you're happy with someone else's happiness. Does that take anything away from you? Do you feel that you've been diminished just because you're more open to someone else's good fortune? His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, says, if happiness is infectious and spreads from person to person, it only makes sense to practice mudita for others in that there's more of a chance that you will feel more happiness. The odds are seven billion to one. (laughs) Chance it. And you can feel this energy, you know, like... When, when someone smiles at you in the street for no good reason, it feels good. There's a, there's a connection that's there that's nonverbal, that you recognize even though the content isn't there. You have no idea why they did that. But the content doesn't matter. It's the, it's the connection, which is what Sylvia was referring to yesterday afternoon around the experience of kindness is the experience of connection.
And when we feel that connection collectively, it's powerful. It's powerfully inspiring. I don't know if uh, some of you may have been in San Francisco City Hall when the um, uh, when they first allowed same-sex marriages to be held, and um, it was this. I mean, it, there was a lot of exuberance, but it the energy was bouncing off of the walls. People from Wisconsin were sending flowers to it didn't matter who. You know, flowers were just arriving for everybody. <laughs> that, 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 you know, that shared joy. There's an artist called Candy Chang, and um, she um, had a death uh, in her close circle that she was grieving. And um, she was going through this process and, and um, uh, she just began to tap into what was, what was underneath the grief. And um, so she just, you know, uh, she was an artist. And so she, I think what happened is that she just took this blank wall and, and just wrote, before I die, I want to. And, you know, she put out her message. And the next day, dozens of messages were on that wall. And it became an art piece that has traveled across the world, across 60 different cultures and 25 different languages. And it taps into this energy, even though the, the question is, before I die, so it is about death, but it's about life. So in Chicago, before I die, I want to watch my kids go to college, love and be loved, save a life, fund scholarships. In New Orleans, abandon all insecurities, see equality, see all the homeless people with homes, swim with the dolphins, in Brooklyn, be a princess. <laughs> Kiss God. See an end to racism. Find who I really am. Create my own children's book. In Mexico, a peaceful Mexico. Find a cure for cancer. Change the lives of people. Live my best life. Meet Beyonce. <laughs> In Kazakhstan, learn how to be brave. See my great-great-granddaughter. Change the world. See all people be kind. It's a universal energy, this, this energy of life. There is this sense of connection, of interconnection between us, regardless of what else is happening, that we're all living this life in technicolor, this brilliance of the joys and the sorrows. And this can be the balance to sometimes the intensity of the challenges 
is the brilliance of the life itself. I often read this if I'm doing the eating meditation instructions, but it really speaks beyond the eating. It speaks, it, it speaks to um, the life of the food and the person that's, that's um, uh, being sustained. This is written in particular by Michael Beckwith, who is a spiritual leader of the Gopi Foundation. When I was a young boy, probably 10, all the students at school had been asked to grow gardens and I can remember planting the seeds in the soil of my backyard, carrots, radishes. One afternoon I went into the backyard and pulled a radish out of the soil and bit into it. It was so sweet. In that moment I felt the whole universe was contained in this radish. It had begun as a seed then merged with the soil and the air and the water until it became the vegetable that I now was eating. I thought, this is what they're trying to teach me in church. They're trying to tell me this, this life, this presence, this great life that's in this radish is everywhere. This is the life force that they call God. Mudita is this zest for life that is supported by the factors of awakening, the curiosity, this sense of, of interest in the, in, the, in the wonder of our life. And so some of the phrases that, that are on the, on the uh, copies that you have are the practices that incline the mindfulness and the awareness and the kindness towards this aspect of joy. May you enjoy happiness and abundance. May your happiness and good fortune never wane. I rejoice in your happiness. May you feel contented and pleased. May your happiness be immeasurable and may the causes of your happiness never cease. Audre Lorde was a um, Wow, she was a poet, she was an author, she was a human rights activist, she was a feminist, she was many things. She also um, uh, dealt with um, uh, breast cancer, which eventually um, she succumbed to at, at a relatively early age of 58. Um, she was um, heavily involved in the gay rights movement and and um, the civil rights movement. So her life has seen a lot of challenges. She went through a lot of struggles. And she writes, once we recognize that it is, once we recognize that it that it is we are feeling, once we recognize we can feel deeply, love deeply, can feel joy, 
then we will demand that all parts of our lives produce that kind of joy. And as we expand from that place of our heart, and as we, as we meet you know, all of our moments, the, the sorrows and the joys, with this, um, with this gentleness, with this openness, and we begin to see this brilliance of our life, even in the sorrows. There is this joyful kindness that arises that we might call gratitude. This, 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 oh my God, this is what my life is like. When they say that, that life is, is so precious living 24-7 in this practice moment to moment, that I'm not living a thought, I'm not living a dream, I'm not living, you know, a hope or a wish. I can actually feel the life that's being lived right now. You know, that, that as, uh, have you, if you've walked down the hill in the early morning dawn before, you know, the sun rises, or just as the sun rises, and everything is quiet, all, all the sense doors can be activated. And you can almost smell the sunrise, you know? You can, you can, you can feel the connection between the rays of the sun and the, the, the um, grass with the, the, with the frost or the, the dew on it. We begin to really refine our appreciation and awareness of these details in our life that we totally take for granted. How often do we notice that brilliance when we're walking to work? Or how often do we notice the brilliance of the breath in the midst of our activities? Or when we're eating our meal, multitasking with, with all the conversations or the jobs that we have to do over lunch. We're not really eating the food. We're eating the conversations or the, or the newspaper or the, the thing that we have to do. And so, as we, as we deepen in this week, in this practice, we become amazed about how much life has given us. This amazement is, is a kind of awe that those things that we've previously taken for granted are now in the forefront of our awareness. And it's just the invitation to be appreciative or grateful. This was written by a friend of a friend who um, a few years ago, um, uh, before his bar mitzvah, um, went into um, si a little bit of silence, a little bit of quiet time before he met with his rabbi. And in his room, he, um, he wrote this and then came out. It's called Amazement, and the young man is, is a name, man by the name of Misha Brooks. We can find ways to raise ourselves above others, 
rankings and orders, but when we stand on butterfly wings or fall with thick rain or rest in the heartbeat of a hummingbird, we look upon the world with a sense of awe that all humans have. We can wake up to the sirens of the daily drag, but if we open our eyes and absorb the world around us, we might find that salutation of serendipity and if we look closely enough, we find that sun ray of serendipity surrendering to the morning dew. These acts of wonder may not be plentiful and they may not be expected, but they are waiting for you to notice. It may not be a tulip or a rainbow. It may just be a handshake or a sound that wakes up your soul calling out with a voice only you can understand. It is these moments that makes us live. The wait may seem worthless, but the time is priceless. And so we live each day the same until we find a rose petal or a rock or a feather that calls our name and speaks to us with infinite seconds of complete bliss. A 13-year-old is amazed with life. I'm amazed at him. But he's pointing to all of us can be amazed at life. All of us have that capacity. So just to um, talk a little bit more about gratitude and and um, as a as a mindfulness practice that um, personally I distinguish it between the gratitude between um, well I distinguish gratitude from the action of giving thanks so giving thanks is a um, is an activity, and activities can have many different intentions, right? So I can thank you because um, it's what everybody does. I can thank you because I want more of what you just gave me. And I can thank you because I am just so unconditionally grateful for what you've just given me. These are really three different experiences. Totally, the action may look the same. But the internal motivation of, of the last one that is of gratitude. So gratitude for me is that internal movement of the heart that leads to, can lead to, the giving of thanks. And like mudita, like uh, appreciative joy. It's hard when we're, you know, in the comparing mind, in the competitive mind. It's hard to feel grateful when you feel less than, or that when you don't, when, when there's some inadequacy that we're experiencing. So there's a, there's a, um, benefit in seeking or being aware of the abundance in our life. 
where are, where are things fruitful? Where is there the success and the, the, the abundance that we've received, the gifts that we've, that we've received? And from that place, gratitude comes more easily. And it's maybe a no-brainer that when we feel full and complete, it's easier to be there for others and be grateful. When we feel more loved, we can offer that love. When we feel cared for, we can easily take care of others. And so part of the mindfulness practice is to remember the abundance in our life because we can forget There's a term, um, kata nyuta in Pali. Kata means that which has been done, and anuta means knowing or recognizing or remembering that quality of sati. So kata nyuta means knowing and recognizing that which has been done for one's benefit. Recognizing the abundance that has been given to us. And our... Uh, unconscious conditioning is really sometimes to forget the gifts of abundance because what happens is we just want more. You know, we just went through the holiday season and I, I sometimes watch the, the advertising slogans that appear and there was one that um, I just had to laugh from the perspective of the Dharma. Um, it said, I want you to want me. And there was another one that says, moderation kills the spirit. <laughs> you know, talk about, talk about um, conditioning. More is better. Again, His Holiness. It is fascinating. In the West, you have bigger homes, yet smaller families. You have endless conveniences, and yet you never seem to have time. You travel everywhere in the world, and you don't cross the road to meet your neighbor. I don't think that people have become more selfish, but their lives have become easier, and that has spoiled them. They expect more. They constantly compare themselves to others, which brings no real freedom. And so the awareness of where things, of just allowing things to be as they are, this practice that is sometimes called the practice of contentment. It's, you know, it's in, the, in the midst of all the activities that are thrown at us, it is sometimes really difficult to recognize. In some of the interviews, um, What's come up is, um, oh yeah, the phrases are coming quite easily, the walking's coming quite easily. Um, you know, the categories make sense, the archetypes make sense. Is that all there is? <laughs> what else? I'm not feeling it. Just turn the lens of awareness, even in a, in into a more detailed way. And so what is it that's being 
offered in this moment of, of, is that all there is? Nothing horrible is happening. The opposite of metta is not arising, so that's a good thing. You may not be feeling the bliss state, right? So there's this whole area of life that sometimes we call kind of neutral, that we miss. Most of our moments are not the superlative, you know, um, um, mountaintops. And they're not always the deepest, darkest holes of depression or anger. And we miss so much of our life because we're not paying attention to when we're just satisfied and content and things don't need to be anything other than they are. And that's a beautiful state. So, you know, in this way we tend to be drama queens. We want, you know, the extremes, the highs or the lows. So notice the non-drama. Where is the non-drama? Because that could be a place of satisfaction. The Buddha writes, you who want to escape from the various afflictions must contemplate what it means to know satisfaction. For those who do not know satisfaction, it does not suit their fancy even if they're in heaven. The people who do not know satisfaction are poor even if they're rich. The people who do know satisfaction are rich even if they're poor. And in this place of contentment, the seeds of gratitude can flourish, can open, appreciating everything, the pleasant, unpleasant, the neutral, beginning to appreciate the full range of our life. Because if gratitude is, is an unconditional state of our heart, it is not dependent on anything. It's not even dependent on abundance or pleasure or actually even contentment. Being grateful, I'll do a play on words, is really seeing the great fullness of our life that contains all of our experiences. So when those of you who are in a a primary relationship or even a close relationship with a family member or a friend and you care about them deeply, you love them, you don't just love the good parts, you don't just love, you know, the things that make you happy. You have to love all of who they are. You know, I love the fact that Stephen and I go traveling. But I also have to love the fact that we argue about who unloads the dishwasher. And we have to appreciate all of our joys and sorrows. Sometimes it takes a lifetime to cultivate this gratitude. And, you know, um, 
that's hard for us in a culture that really is about immediate gratification. But there is something about um, having the patience and the faith that it does transform our lives. So, um, as with, I think, I think everybody in this room, but um, I have a complicated relationship with my family. And, you know, whether my particular circumstances are yours, every family is complex and um, has the joys and sorrows within them. So, uh, particularly with my parents growing up, and, you know, I was, I was split between two cultures, Chinese and American, and um, always being pulled in different directions, and then having... Um, this piece of my identity that I was repressing for the first 30 years of my life. I didn't come out to my parents. Um, uh, They were the last people in my life that I came out to uh, when I approached the age of 30. And um, when I did come out to them, my mother didn't speak to me for a year. Um, And it was in the early 80s, it was at the height of the AIDS crisis and, and what she wrote to me in a letter, because she wasn't speaking to me, was, you're going to die. Because, you know, in her confused delusion, that's what she associated, you know, sexual orientation with. So when Stephen and I got together about 15 years ago, the first holiday season, we sent out Christmas cards, uh, holiday cards, And she was enraged because we put our names together on the address label. And she thought that was, it just triggered her. We had our commitment ceremony and uh, she finally decided to come dressed in in gray and black. (laughs) And the next week when I visited her, she proceeded to tell me every single thing that went wrong. Meanwhile, it was a perfect day for us. And so one of the hardest things was holding the tension between the love of my partner and the love of my parents. And that was for years. And over time, he became part of the uh, sorrows and the joys of the family. My mom began to cook his favorite dishes. Then she taught him how to cook them. And then she showered him with compliments once he did cook them. And it was at, it was the, it was the, Um, time when my father passed and we were sitting vigil, that it was Stephen that actually had the courage and the um, sensitivity to literally say out loud, he's gone. He was the one that broke the silence. So my mom is 97 now and, you know, she leans on him when he's there to walk. And as, we're, as I'm watching them, 
them walk together, um, she very frequently slips into Mandarin because it slipped her mind that she's talking to someone from Iowa and not <laughs> not China. And in the middle of that, you know, like, is that gratitude? Is that forgiveness? Is that joy? Is that kindness? Is that compassion? It feels to me as everything is there. I can't even, you know, the, the, the heart doesn't distinguish between these practices, even though these practices have helped me get here. The inclination of heart, the heart doesn't, doesn't have any conceptual boundaries. And so one of the things I now fully appreciate in ways that I couldn't before is, um, is the teaching that the Buddha offered. Even if you should carry one's mother and one's father on one's shoulder and do so for a hundred years, not even by this could one repay one's parents for giving life. And so she has one teaching left to offer, which I, you know, it's, uh, I, I cannot be other than grateful for it. And that is how she is fading and passing. And it is such a teaching. So gratitude is not always about pleasant feelings. It rejoices in whatever takes place. That, that soft acceptance of the totality of our experience. Gratitude is the opposite of regret or nostalgia. You know, the wishing for a past that never was or, or is no more. And it's not the hope or the anticipation of what may come in the future. Embedded in gratitude is a, is a very gentle letting go of past and future into the, the, um, the present moment as it is. offer, just to be transparent, I offer some of these stories um, because this practice has changed my life. And, and I can't even begin to express the gratitude I have for that. It is phenomenal to me how they've impacted um, how I relate to this 
this life that has been offered. And, you know, even though some of the experiences I describe may be different than yours, we all have gone through huge challenges and difficulties and, and injuries. And yet we've all created, I think I was talking about this last time, these incredible lives about, it's now more than 20 years ago, it's about 25 years ago, when I first arrived in San Francisco, um, I was assaulted in, in the city. And, um, and I was lucky because San Francisco General Hospital has a world-renowned trauma center. And um, they were fabulous. And um, so uh, after that event, it actually... Um, changed what I was interested in doing in life. And it was a little bit of a wake-up call. And um, so I um, went back to school and I became a psychotherapist and I started working in the, in the city mental health clinics and um, uh, trained at um, UCSF and began supervising other psychotherapists and, and ended up at the outpatient psychotherapy um, department at San Francisco General. This was um, about 15 years ago. And I was going through the files orienting myself to the department and I realized in that moment that there, of course there had been mergers for city clinics and, and you know, um, uh, combinations of departments and the department I was working in it be, was a different generation of the department that I was treated in and that I was the supervising therapist of the clinic that I had done my own healing and I had to be so grateful for every single component of my experience that including the assault. Because I wouldn't be who I am today without it. Suffering asks, why me? Why did I experience this? Gratitude asks, who else? Who else can live this life? A life of suffering really only knows how to survive and gratitude has the insight to know that we were born for so much more than survival. And that's what makes this such a radical practice. That we recognize who we are, this incredible potential for freedom. And this is the great joy that connects us all. This is the energy of life that the more we are aware, the more the heart is open and that we are kind. The more we are kind, the more joy that we experience and the more joy we experience, there is this opening of gratitude. And when there is gratitude, life 
is precious. What else is there, really? I'll end with a, uh, a one last story about a, a friend of Spirit Rock, um, a, a community of friends. Um, and it's about um, the recent passing of the abbot of um, San Francisco Zen Center, Steve Stuckey, Neogen Steve Stuckey. Uh, Zen Center and Spirit Rock are close Dharma uh, friendship communities. This bell was given by the Zen Center to Spirit Rock in the invocation of this hall. And um, in September, the abbot, um, who was seemingly incredibly healthy at the time, uh, got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and just declined. He died within 97 days. And he was so beloved by everybody in that community. And on Thanksgiving Day, he wrote this. The challenge of this practice often slaps me in the face and sets off a series of seemingly impossible barriers. These days, as you may know, I wake up and say, gratitude. And the next thought is, pain in the belly, or cancer, or It's not fair. To accept such thoughts with gratitude may be impossible and even contribute to further unwholesome states of mind. So it is realistically healthier to enter this practice by creating a field of positive energy by first naming what you know from experience is nourishing you. For example, gratitude for my friend gratitude for my mentor, my lover, my mother, the person who changed my life, gratitude for sobriety, for my family, this food, the sunlight, the mashed potatoes and the gravy, the capacity for healing. It quickly becomes clear that one can create an infinite list of positive nourishments and the mere fact of being alive tells one that positive that is, life-supporting factors, outweighs all others. This is the basis for a fundamental confidence in reality. Know that this life is a rare and wonderful thing because it is happening right now with the full support of the universe. Once the above truth is clear, it is not so difficult to be kind. One naturally wants to give back to that from which one has received so much. And since one has received and is now receiving so much from the mere existence of each other, it is the perfect time to say, thank you. Meaning, I love you. I invite you to take this practice today as a positive and nourishment practice for yourself. And as you do, I feel more gratitude and delight. So from that invitation and also from um, one of the something that, that Sylvia said yesterday, I'd like to invite you into a gratitude practice if you so feel moved.
And um, over the next couple of days, if you feel so moved, just write something that you're grateful for and put it in the, and put it in the bell. The bell that Zen Center has given to us. And it could be, you know, spontaneous. You can do it after a, a sitting. But collectively, we're going to develop an alternative rap sheet. Remember the rap sheet that Sylvia was unfurling? That was, you know, that is the self-judgments and the whatever. We're going to create a different rap sheet. And so sometime on Saturday midday, we'll collect all of them, type them up, and you'll, they'll be passed out to everybody. And that we will have the collective experience. You know, sometimes it feels like the gratitude list, which may, many of you know is a practice, doesn't, doesn't, you know, doesn't do anything. You know, is this all there is? But when we feel it from others, when we feel that, you know, before I die, I want to, that can support your practice. Because I'm going to say it again. We don't walk this path alone. This is as much about our collective experience as it is about our individual one. And I'm so appreciative. I'm so grateful for all of you and all of your practice. And as you place the gratitude in the bell and as the bell is rung throughout the day, just imagine those wishes of gratitude ringing out into the world and the universe. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.